Hey everyone, it's Leslie Ludi, host of the Set Apart Girl podcast, biblical encouragement for women of all ages. Today we're going to talk about a topic that is sometimes really hard to navigate, being reviled, or in other words, how to live set apart when other people don't understand the path that you're walking. And I want to start out reading the words of Jesus from Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is such an amazing scripture because most of us, when we are treated that way, immediately feel sorry for ourselves or become really upset, really angry, really depressed, try to figure out why anybody would ever treat us that way. And Jesus is saying, you are blessed when you are treated with reviling, when people say evil against you, when people exclude you and cast out your name as evil, you are supposed to rejoice. What a baffling statement. Revile, when he's speaking about being reviled, it means to pursue with hatred and to detest. So this isn't just rejoice when someone kind of makes a snide remark about you being a Christian. This is sort of like the more intense the hatred is, the more we should rejoice because our reward in heaven is great. And when you begin to walk that set apart path and make your life all about Jesus, people are going to be uncomfortable with your life. There is just no way around it. If you choose the narrow way of the cross, this is what you've signed up for. It says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It doesn't say they might suffer persecution or occasionally it could happen. We will suffer persecution and probably to varying degrees. There are, there are Christians around the world suffering far beyond anything those of us who live here in America could possibly imagine or even comprehend. And yet it doesn't actually matter where we live when we choose a set-apart life, when we truly build our lives around Jesus Christ, we are going to experience some kind of reviling or persecution along the way. So first I want to look at why does reviling happen? Because I think it can be really confusing. I know for me, in the times when I've been falsely accused or hated or reviled, I tend to really ask a lot of questions like, why? What did I do to that person? How could they hate me so much? Why are they uh, so fixated on all the things that they can't stand about me? What did I possibly do? And, and it can be very confusing. And here are some of the things that I've learned as I've taken this area of my life before God. The first is that light and darkness are constantly at war with each other. And if you look all throughout scripture, it's talking about light and darkness cannot coexist and bitter fruit and sweet fruit cannot coexist. So if they are living in darkness and you are living in light, the spirit that is within them opposes and resists the spirit that is within you. I remember one time when I very first began to live a set-apart life, and I was pretty new to being consecrated for Christ, but I was going to a public high school, and I really wasn't being very outspoken about my faith. I was just simply living out my convictions the best I could and trying to be outward focused in my life. And I remember seeing a girl in the locker room in my PE class, and she seemed like she was very dark and oppressed. She was dressed all in 
black and chains and really dark eyeliner and tattoos and just seemed very, very um, dark in her attitude and her spirit and in her appearance. And I, I just remember smiling at her. I didn't even say anything, but just smiled at her. And then I went over to my locker and was getting something out. And I felt all of a sudden my neck being pulled back. And this girl had come up to me and grabbed my hair and jerked my neck back and began yelling and screaming obscenities at me. I was so shocked. I was so surprised because I hadn't really done anything. I hadn't even had a conversation with her. And I couldn't believe that she was suddenly absolutely just detesting me and hating me. And people were starting to come in the locker room so pretty soon she just sort of walked away. But I was, you know, tears were blurring my eyes. I was shaking. I didn't really know how to respond to this. But as I went home, talked to my parents about it and other godly people in my life, it was really clear that the darkness within her was opposing the light that was beginning to form in my life. And so I realized what I needed to do was rejoice and to pray for her. And the story of Stephen in the book of Acts is similar. When he shares with them all of this amazing truth, it says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And because they were not able to resist, it it really shone that searchlight in their own souls and brought conviction that they didn't want. And they became so furious with him that they began to cast him out of the city and eventually stone him because they hated him so much. The darkness in them was opposed to the light that was in Stephen. So when we reflect Christ's nature, it exposes sin in others. They feel convicted, and oftentimes they want to justify themselves. And if they can attack us, they feel like they have a reason to throw out everything that we're saying. 1 Peter 4.4 says, They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. I'm sure many of you listening to this can relate to that. Being around non-Christian peers and friends and coworkers and even family members, they become surprised and even annoyed and irritated that you don't join them in their reckless living. And because you're not joining in, it makes them feel convicted and they begin to heap abuse on you. You may have heard statements like, what do you think? You're holier than thou. And, you know, you're just trying to act like you're all pure and pious and, you know, make everybody else around you feel guilty and uncomfortable. Maybe these are familiar statements to you, but this is nothing new to someone living a consecrated Christian life. In Luke 16, 5, Jesus is speaking to uh, the Pharisees and he's saying, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And again, in Luke 10, 29, it's talking about one of the Pharisees who's challenging Jesus. And it says he wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This was after Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, well, who is my neighbor? And that is oftentimes what you'll see when someone wants to justify themselves, they begin to challenge and argue and debate and to heap abuse on you. And justify in this verse actually means to defend or declare your own righteousness. And so what oftentimes people who are convicted by watching you live a set-apart life will want to do is to defend or declare their own righteousness. Now, I've been on both ends of self-justification, so I, I really understand this from both sides of the spectrum. I remember when I was in a time of my life when I really wasn't as consecrated to Jesus Christ as I knew I should be. I had allowed a lot of pop culture into my thinking and into my my free time. And my standards for what I would watch and listen to as a Christian began to go downhill. And 
things that I would have never watched when I first gave my life to Jesus Christ, I began to be more comfortable with. And I remember recommending a movie to a close friend of mine, and it was um, romantic comedy, but it had a lot of immorality in it. And I had just kind of justified it by saying, well, you know, I look past all of that. I'm, I'm more mature than that. I can, I can overlook it and just enjoy the rest of the movie. But then my friend, who was also sort of like a spiritual accountability partner in my life, she said in a very loving and gentle way, why are you comfortable watching that kind of immorality? And I remember being kind of bristling, like, well, who does she think she is? You know, I immediately fell into self-justification and I was thinking, you know, she's just got a problem with legalism. She's trying to make everybody around her rise up to her standards. It's my choice what movies I watch. And for a long time, I was very resentful that she had spoken anything into my life about it. But then as God began to get a hold of my life and convict me about this area, I began to realize that it wasn't that she was ensnared to legalism or that she was trying to be holier than thou. She was really concerned for my soul. And I began to see exactly why I shouldn't be watching movies like that and realized that it was only self-justification that had blinded me to see uh, what her true intentions were in talking to me. And then I've also been on the other side of self-justification where people have reviled me because of what I stand for. I remember one time a girl read one of my books on purity, and she just loved the book. She wrote all sorts of notes in the margin and highlighted so much of it. It was like her favorite book for a whole season of her life. And then she got into a season of moral compromise and losing uh, that walk of purity in her life. And suddenly she pulled this book back out and she hated the book. She she was crossing things out of it. She was ripping it up. She was throwing it in the corner. She just, you know, couldn't couldn't say enough bad things about this book. And then about a year later, God began to really convict her of her sinful lifestyle and she repented and she picked the book up again and she realized how much she loved it and agreed with it because she was now walking in truth again. And so when she read truth in that book, she actually it resonated with her soul. But when she was in that season of trying to justify her sin, she actually hated the book because it brought conviction into her life. That's just one example. I've had a lot more experience Extreme, uh, reviling in my life because of the messages that I speak and what I stand for when it exposes sin in other people's lives. But I want to look at God's perspective on reviling because it's so easy when you're being reviled for your stand for Christ to begin to turn inward and to be confused and to allow it to actually bring a snare in your own relationship with Christ. So let's look at what the Bible has to say just in a really brief snapshot. It is an honor to share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. And this is something I think so many of us as Christians overlook. We want to escape suffering. We want to escape persecution and reviling any way that we can. But it is actually an honor to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. The early church knew this. And oftentimes the early Christians would want to be martyred simply because it was the highest honor they could ever have in the church was to give their lives for the one who had given everything for them. Today, we want to avoid all discomfort and we don't look at suffering for Christ as a privilege. But the Bible says that it is. In Acts 5.41, it's talking about the apostles who were persecuted for speaking bold truth. And it says, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they, meaning the apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
Now, shame in this verse means to dishonor, to insult, and to treat with contempt. So here were the apostles actually rejoicing that they were dishonored, insulted, and treated with contempt because they realized it was for the sake of Christ and they saw it for the privilege that it was. And in Philippians 3.10, Paul is saying, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of of his sufferings. This was one of Paul's highest desires was to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Something so intriguing about that. There is a closeness that we can have, an intimacy that we can have with Jesus Christ when we are willing to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. In John 15, 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And that's so powerful because when that happens to me, when I feel like I'm being dishonored, insulted, or treated with contempt, I can remember that Jesus walked this path before I did in much more extreme circumstances that I could ever comprehend. And it is an honor to walk that same path for his sake. It's a way of sharing and fellowshipping with him and sharing in his sufferings. 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21 says, If when you do right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. I think that's an amazing verse because it says you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So suffering for the sake of Christ is actually part of our calling. Isn't that incredible? Philippians 1.29 says, For it to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So we are called to this. It's a privilege. It's been given to us, and it is a way of sharing in the sufferings of the one who suffered for us. We can never repay Christ for what he's done for us, but sharing with him in a small part of his sufferings is a way of showing our love and gratitude for him and drawing closer to him. Suffering for Jesus Christ, going through persecution and reviling, actually refines us and it makes us more like Jesus. It teaches a deeper surrender and a more complete obedience. And even Jesus walked through this. In Hebrews 5, 8, it says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So if Jesus had to walk through this path to learn these things, then who are we to think that we can escape them? So when that reviling comes, whether it's extreme persecution or simply people in your life who kind of keep their distance from you or make snide remarks because of your stand for Christ, how should you respond? Here are just a few practical things that I want to share with you. First, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't turn inward. I love what Amy Carmichael wrote in her book, If. She said, if the praise of man elates me and his blame depresses me, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I feel injured when one lays to my charge things which I know not, forgetting that my Savior trod this path to the end, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I am perturbed by reproach and misunderstanding, if I cannot commit the matter and go on in peace and in silence, remembering Gethsemane and the cross, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Those words are so encouraging and so convicting to me because the temptation when we are reviled is to turn inward, to feel sorry for ourselves, to say, woe is me. I can't believe I'm going through this. I can't believe that person would do this to me. And yet 
Amy Carmichael is talking about how we aren't to get depressed by the blame of others or to feel injured when we're falsely accused or to be perturbed by reproach and misunderstanding. We are to commit the matter into Jesus' hands and go on in peace and in silence, remembering how he suffered for us. And that is really the path to walking through reviling in a way that has triumph and victory instead of self-pity and depression. The second way to respond is what Jesus tells us to do, which is to rejoice. Now, I have to say this is the hardest one for me to do. It's the last thing I feel like doing when I am hated, reviled, dishonored, insulted. And yet in Luke 6, and 23, it says, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed, great is your reward in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And I remember a few years ago, my husband Eric began actually physically leaping for joy when these things would happen in our lives, like standing up and jumping up in the air and rejoicing. I haven't actually tried that yet, but I have tried leaping inside, (laughs) on the inside, leaping for joy. And it's really amazing because there is such a power in choosing to rejoice, in choosing to agree with the words of Jesus in this verse, whether your emotions feel like it or not, choosing to agree with God's word and putting your emotions in their place and saying, I'm going to choose to rejoice even though my emotions are screaming otherwise. Lord, I know that you've allowed this into my life for a higher purpose, for a reason that's going to draw me closer to you. And because of that, I rejoice. And the third practical way to respond is to overcome evil with good. This is also a really hard one. But it says in Romans 12, 20 through 21, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, overcome in this verse means to conquer, to come off victorious. And with good means pleasant, joyful, happy, excellent, upright, and honorable in behavior. So the way that we become victorious when we are treated this way is to be towards our enemies, be pleasant, joyful, happy, excellent, upright, and honorable. So in other words, the way that they're treating you don't respond in like spirit. It says in 1 Peter 3, 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. When you treat those who revile you with love, it puts you in a position of strength and it puts them in a position of weakness and it baffles them. It challenges them and it makes them realize that maybe, just maybe, you might have something that they need. So the goal isn't just to put them in a position of weakness, but it is to bring them to the point of realizing that there is a strength, there is a power in love that is greater than the power of hate and selfishness. I love the story that Otto Koning tells. He was a missionary to New Guinea, and he has uh, the Pineapple Story series. And in one of the messages in that series, he talks about being in the jungle and these two tribal men who were horrible enemies to him. They constantly made his life difficult. They threatened to kill him on multiple occasions. They constantly tried to block the mission work that he was doing. They didn't want him to start a school, didn't want him to start a church, threatened him constantly, scared his children. And there came a time in Otto Koning's missionary 
life where these two men were wounded very badly and the only person who could save their lives was him and so he really wrestled with it because he thought about how much easier his life would be if they just went ahead and died and yet he remembered what God said about loving your enemies and treating them with honor and with blessing and responding the opposite spirit so he felt strongly he was supposed to go and save their lives so he gave them medical care and both of them survived and for the rest of his life they served him. They were indebted to him. It's a really incredible story, but instead of blocking his way, they actually paved the way and made it easier for him to do the work that God had called him to do. And that is the kind of power that loving your enemies can have. You may not see the results right away, but if you continue to love and pray for those who revile you, you will truly heat burning coals on their head. You will truly show them the strength of love. Final thoughts that I want to share with you this week. Being reviled at first glance might seem like something that you want to avoid at all costs. But if you remember how Jesus was treated when he walked this earth and how countless Christians through the ages and right now all around the world are being treated because of their stand for Christ, it really puts things into perspective. Don't forget that it is truly an honor to share in the sufferings of Christ. And remember that Jesus warns that when all men speak well, of us, we are not on the right path. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. So even if the entire world is against you, if you stand with Jesus, you have chosen the path of true life. And if you endure to the end, you can know that you will receive the amazing reward of him saying to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. For more on this topic, please see the many resources we have available at setapartgirl.com and consider subscribing to our magazine, which is an amazing, beautiful, ad-free resource filled with rich spiritual truths that can strengthen every area of your walk with Christ. I pray that you have a blessed and Christ-centered week.